you got to have a bit of fun on Mother's Day, right? <laughs> Believe it or not, that's a church somewhere in the States that put that together, which I think is fantastic if you haven't seen it before. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to start with something that acknowledges, you know, mom's in the room. You are phenomenal. The amount of work that you put up with, I didn't realize it until my wife was a mom, what all my mom had put up with, with for me. So yeah, thank you for everything that you do. I just want to, I want to start by praying for the moms in the room. Um, so let's take a moment. If you've got a mom next to you, you can be praying for her as I pray. <laughs> God, thank you for the gift of moms that are here in the room. Thank you for the sacrifice they make. Uh, moms, perhaps more than anyone else, show us the unconditional love of the Father and the sacrifices that you make on our behalf. So God, thank you for the sacrificial love that moms make for their kids. God, as we celebrate Mother's Day today, we, we just pray that you would strengthen and bless the moms that are part of our congregation. Um, God, we pray that you would comfort those in the room who have lost their mom and don't get to celebrate with her today. Uh, Lord, we pray for those in the room who have a strained relationship with their mom that you bring reconciliation. We pray for those who long to be a mom and haven't had that privilege, Lord, that your blessing, your comfort, and your strength would be on them. And then lastly, as we think about where we're going as a church, would you raise up spiritual moms uh, who are leading people from darkness to light uh, and, and strengthening them in their faith. So I thank you for the moms that we have. Would you bless them? In Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, uh, thanks for joining us. You join us at a fun point. We are uh, doing this series called Sent where we're working through the book of Acts and we've just crossed the halfway point. So for you who are liking it, it's like, oh, we're halfway already. And for the rest of you, you're like, oh my goodness, we're only halfway. So <laughs> we just hit the halfway point. Today is, is just crossing over halfway. And so the story so far in the book of Acts, so remember, Acts is part two of Luke. So Luke's gospel gives the story and the message of Jesus. You go from there into Acts, and Acts starts, Jesus appears, he ascends into heaven, he pours out his spirit on the church. So we, we begin with Pentecost as the spirit is poured out. From there, the church is mobilized to go out into the world sharing the gospel of Jesus. And we've seen all sorts of challenges, spiritual opposition coming against the church, division within the church, the threat of corruption against the church, all of these things happening. We, we've just gone through the last couple of weeks looking at Paul as he's sent out on this first missionary journey, taking the gospel out to people that don't yet know Christ outside of the Jewish nation. Um, and so you get to this point in the story, that journey has just happened happened and, and more uh, conflict and division and opposition starts stirring up. This time it's a theological one. So we've seen spiritual opposition, we've seen persecution, we've seen corruption in the church. Well this week there's some theological issues cropping up and honestly that's kind of dull, right? <laughs> We're like, I don't want to listen to theological conflict in the church. Maybe you do. Um, we're going to look at this, and, and, and the, the difficult thing with this passage is it's hard when we're this far removed from the events that happened. It's hard to really grasp the implications of what are going on in this passage. So we're going to look at this council that happens as they're debating some theological stuff in the church and look at why is this so significant to the book of Acts, and then what's the implications of that for us today. So we're going to read Acts chapter 15. This is commonly known as the Jerusalem Council. We'll read through it, and, and then we'll break it down a bit. So this is Acts 15, starting in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. 
This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe it. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it's written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who do these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas called Barsabas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that someone out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by the word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. 
Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it was wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthened by the churches. It's like a big, meaty, kind of confusing passage. It's rooted in the history. It's rooted in theological debate. It's rooted in the geography. So, so much of what we're trying to grasp in that passage is all caught up in the story and understanding the context that, that they're living in. So it's hard for us as we sit today, you read this story and you're like, kind of what's going on? Why is circumcision an issue? Why are Paul and John Mark not talking? What all is going on? So what I want to do is just to kind of frame this passage. I'm going to use some big words today, actually. For some of you, they'll be familiar. For others, they won't. I'll explain them as we go. But there are some massive implications of what's going on in this passage. Because what is happening is you've got this, the church has been born. So God has called the Jewish people to be his. He has given them the law and the temple, the tabernacle, the prophets, the, these teachings, and he's been leading these people. And what does it look like to follow God? What does it look like to be his people? Then they're rejecting him. They're, they're, they're not following God's way. Eventually, God sends Christ. So Jesus comes and he lives here in amongst the Jewish people, a Jewish man himself, to reveal to the Jewish people what it really is supposed to look like to follow God. The Jewish people had misunderstood that, that following God was not an ethnic thing. It was not about the shape of our nose, the size of, uh, of our family, the lineage that we came from. It wasn't the color of our skin, the language that we spoke. It was to do with this relationship that we're supposed to be having with God. And, and there were all these scriptures throughout the, the Bible and all these prophecies that said the gospel was going to be for all people. And the Jewish people had lost sight of that and said, it's just about us. Uh, to be one of God's chosen people, you have to come in and, and become a Jew. And there were provisions in the law for people who weren't Jewish for the things that they needed to do to come and be part of the law. And number one was the first symbol of them coming under God's covenant was circumcision. So circumcision was this symbol that as they engaged in it, it said, I commit to being under everything that the law teaches. So then God, Jesus comes, he dies, he's raised to life, he pours out his spirit, the gospel has been spread throughout the nation, and now you've got this situation where you've got Jewish people coming to faith, who have grown up under the law, live in a country where all of the systems aid them in the process of obeying the law. There are some really strict instructions that they've lived under. So you get these people coming to faith and now experiencing this freedom in Christ. Um, and then you've got this Jewish group of people who have grown up in a foreign country with a different system, with different gods they worship, with different values that they hold, and they're coming into the church now. And you've got this issue of how do these two groups come together? This really strict Jewish group who have been brought up in the law and have very strict measures by how they see following God. And then you've got this Gentile bunch who know nothing of the law, who are now encountering the Spirit poured out. And, and how do these things come together? So as this story starts, you've got a group of believers from Jerusalem. It says they're believers of the sect of the Pharisees. 
And we know that Jesus had some issues with the Pharisees because of how strictly they held the law. So you've got this group of believers, they've grown up a Pharisee tradition. They know the law, they adhere to the law, and all of a sudden they've come to faith. And again, it's hard for us to understand what it's like to grow up in that strict religious system and then all of a sudden have this experience of Jesus that's now trying to show you a different way to encounter the God that we're trying to serve. And so these people are trying to wrestle, what's my relationship to the law, to Moses, to my Jewish faith, and how does that reconcile with this Jesus and the message that's being taught? Equally, you've got this Gentile group of people, the Spirit's been poured out on them, and they're going, what does it mean for me now to be following God in this world with this new God that I didn't know about? And, and, and so these issues are coming up. So you've got one group who are adamant that, that, that God's chosen people are the Jews. The sign of God's chosen people is circumcision. And so it doesn't matter what nation, tribe, or tongue that you come from. You want to be saved to be one of God's people. It starts with circumcision. And so they, they hear the message that Paul is preaching, and they go after it. This message is wrong. My job is to come behind Paul and correct this false teaching. And he's walking into these people who don't understand the system and putting on them this weight. If you want to be saved, here's all the things that you have to do. It starts with being circumcised. That's going to say you're in God's covenant people. Then there's this law. So you're going to have to start obeying the Sabbath. You have to watch what meats you're eating. You can't wear mixed fabric clothes. You've got to watch who you're mingling with. You've got to get to the temple for worship. And they're starting to put this heavy load on these people who live far away from the temple and can't get there to worship there. Um, and it's getting super complicated. And it tells you in the text that the, the people are feeling disturbed and burdened and discouraged by this message. And, and so what happens is they call this council. Paul and Barnabas and some of the believers go down to Jerusalem from this Gentile area in Syria. They go down to Jerusalem and they begin this conversation, this dialogue. Okay, as the, the church in Jerusalem that represents the Jewish Christians, and as us in the church in Antioch, which represents the Gentile Christians, let's bring our leaderships together and figure out how do these two groups of people come together? And of all the things we're seeing and doing, what does this say about what it means to be saved? What does it mean to be part of God's chosen people? What does it mean to move out into the world? So the first thing that I want to say, and, and, and this one's obvious, one of the implications of, of this discussion is theological. So you've got this, this little verse in here. God made a choice. He's, he's explaining, God made a choice among you that Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did so. So one of the implications of this council that's happening is theological. There are discussions happening. Who is God? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be the church? I've, I've got a list up here of some of these, uh, these issues. Who is the person of God? This concept of who he chooses. Um, what is the role of the Gentiles in God's plan? Uh, as, as the Spirit pours out and this church is forming, they're going back over thousands of years of religious history and reevaluating scriptures and all of a sudden seeing all of these truths in there that were, it's not just about Jews. God has a plan for everyone out there. And so they're re-examining scripture and seeing this broader plan for the Gentiles. It's a question about who is God's people? Because for the Jews, it was ethnic Jews. People who were descended from the patriarchs, from Abraham, were the people that were God's chosen people. The question is, what now? If it's not people that are descended from Abraham, 
physically and, and biologically, then how do you define God's people? It's, it's a discussion about what is the role of the law? Now, if you're a Jew growing up in a system that, that is surrounded by the law, and you see Jesus as the fulfillment of that, in many senses, it's easy to kind of continue in those rituals as you live out your faith. But what is the role of the law to them? And, and when you look at the people out there, it's actually watching the Gentiles interact with the law that's going to help the Jews understand what their relationship to the law should be. Because what's your relationship to the law when you weren't brought up in that system knowing that Jesus fulfilled it all? And then there's theological implications in there to do with the behavior. What does it look like? What kind of life are we supposed to live? Israel was a set-apart people, called to be holy, called to be different. So what does it mean for us now? What what are the behavioral issues we're supposed to walk in? So this, in, in many senses, this council, it's reaffirming God's sovereignty. It's declaring some truth about how the Spirit works. It's redefining the people of God. It's reorienting and reinterpreting what our relationship is as we live in this New Testament era to the laws of the old. And then it's reestablishing biblical truths about the kind of life we're supposed to be living as the people of God. So that's major. Um, Number two up here is ecclesiological. So what's going on here? This, This... Council is important because of the theology. It's important because of the ecclesiology, and that's just a fancy word for how the church is supposed to be, the study of the church or the gathering of God's people. Theology is the study of God. Um, Ecclesiology is the study of how we gather. And so this, this council is really setting up for us what it looks like for us to be part of the church. And I think when I read these passages, like, we're like, we're Gentiles who are included in God's people, and we've got 2,000 years of history of inclusion. And so many senses, you read these passages, and you're like, well, of course we're not expected to live the law. Um, Of course this doesn't matter, but for these people at this time, this is huge. And there are lots of issues going on in our world right now, and there's lots of division in the church over questions like, when you look at certain demographics of people, or certain types of people, or certain situations out in the world, what does it look like for them to be part of the church? And so there are implications in here about ecclesiology. This is talking about what does it mean to be saved? Are you saved through faith in Jesus? Are you saved through obeying the law? Um, And and we, in essence, do a similar thing to what these people are doing when we come to our ecclesiology. How do people participate in the church? We go out into the world and say, here's a list of the do's and don'ts. If you do these things correctly, you're saved. If you don't do them, you're not. Rather than Salvation is about faith in Christ through grace alone. And then there's a bunch of behavioral implications that are going to come from that. But we end up putting this heavy burden on people that are out there and saying, you're now excluded from being saved. And so the issues that they're wrestling with, who is saved and who isn't? How do we come together? How do we make sense of this? What do we stand on? It's an ecclesiological issue that they're discussing in the church. The next one is, is, is scriptural. As they're having this discussion, it looks like this. They come together. There are these people who have this issue. If you're you're coming to faith, you have to be circumcised to be part of God's people. So they're presenting their debate, and they're laying the dilemma on the table. Then you've got all of these church leaders, elders, members of the congregations coming together to have this discussion. And so it starts with presenting the problem. Then it says they have this dialogue about it. They start discussing, like, okay, what's going on? 
And then some people are invited to stand up and speak. So Peter stands up as a respected member of the church and says, you've got to remember just a few chapters ago in chapter 10, this vision I had as I was sent to Cornelius and his family, this Gentile people, I had this vision. I went to these people in response to God. The Spirit poured out over these people that weren't supposed to belong. And then they came to faith. And now look at the church that's been born in the area where they're living. Um, and so Peter starts testifying to what he's seen. Then Paul and Barnabas are, are invited to stand up and say, hey, this is what I saw. This is what's been happening as we've been going around. We're sharing the gospel. People are coming to faith. The Spirit is poured out. And they start declaring their testimony. So really, an issue is presented. They start dialoguing. A bunch of people start sharing their experiences. And it's testimony and personal accounts of what they're seeing happening. But this is the part for me that's most important is they take the issue on the table, they take all of their personal experiences, and then they submit them to Scripture. Because after they hear it all, James comes up, and James is, is recognized as the head of the church. He's the one that in these moments is often the one called on with the last words. So he stands up and gives a summary. And he says, you know, with what you're sharing, the words of the prophets are in, in agreement with this, because this is what is written. And so James listens to everything. And then together, they're, they're, they're searching Scripture. We hear what you're saying. And yes, actually, we see this stuff in Scripture. Because we see it in Scripture, we're then going to acknowledge what you say. And if that's true, we now have to figure out a way to make this work. So it's issues presented. It's personal experiences brought to the table. All of it submitted to the truth of Scripture. And in the world today, there are lots of debatable issues. And what tends to happen is you've got one group over here saying, this is what the Bible says. Don't care about what you experienced. We've got another group over here going, this is what I experienced. Don't really care what the Bible says. Um, but the model that we see all the way through Scripture is prayerfully coming together, listening to the experiences, and then, and then looking at Scripture. Is this here? If it is, and Scripture verifies the experiences we're having, we have to do something about that. And if it's not, then we've got to stand firmly on the truth that we see revealed. I think that's really important. Um, number four, it's pneumatological. So that's, pneuma is the word for spirit. I could just say, I was going to say spiritual, but all of it is spiritual. This is specifically talking about the study of the Spirit. Um, so not just are they looking at the words of Scripture and experience, but they're looking at the work of the Spirit and helping us understand God's work in the world. So you've got these couple of verses. God who knows the heart showed they accepted these people, the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them. And in that situation, there's physical manifestations, tongues and miracles demonstrating that the Spirit had fallen. Uh, had fallen, <laughs> fault. <laughs> and then later on in the story, as they're writing back to the church, there's this moment, it seemed good to the Spirit and to us. So this is not just them sitting in a room and deciding together, but this is watching the work of the Spirit in someone. That There are groups of people out there that we decide are in and out of the church. But when you look at their life and you see the work of the Spirit in them, convicting them, challenging them, you see them ministering with fruit, you've got to stop and go, okay, if the Spirit is at work here, what does that mean for, for how I understand what God is doing? We've got to see where the Spirit is working. We've got to experience it. We've got to bring Spirit and truth together. Um, I love in this little passage, though, when it says, you know, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They've just had this big dialogue and debate. 
They've put the Holy Spirit first and then us. Like the Holy Spirit's already ahead of this, right? In this story, the Holy Spirit's been poured out. The Gentiles have been brought into the church. Like it's already happened. So it's already seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Now we're kind of catching up. And I think we're doing a lot of this in the church as we try and figure out how we minister to the world. And um, we're trying to catch up with where the Spirit is already at work. So we stand firmly in the truth, but we look at what the Spirit is doing. Uh, fifth one, uh, fifth implication of, of this council is missional. And, and this is important because we're in this series called Sent. Like, the church is a sent entity. So if we're living as God's people and we're not actively out there sharing our faith, we're not doing what our faith is calling us to do. Now, if we're standing as the church and we're criticizing the world and we're being loud and vocal about our theology and our politics and we're not actually out there sharing our faith, then we're a noisy symbol and a clanging gong, right? It's very easy to critique. It's very easy to deconstruct and, and go out there and say, this is wrong and that's wrong and that church is doing it wrong and that church is doing it wrong. And yet we sit safely inside the church, never bothering to be bold and share the gospel with the people around about us. Um, so if we're going to be vocal, I've said this many times, if we're going to be vocal about the things we think are right and wrong, let's start with being vocal about Jesus as the Savior of the world and start sharing that with the people around about us. And once we've done that, then we've got permission to start being vocal about some of the other issues that are out there. But it's about Jesus. Um, it's missional. I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. It's ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. This is about the rest of the world seeking God. It's about your neighbors seeking God. It's about the people in our school seeking God. It's about the people that you work with seeking God. It's about family members that don't know him seeking God. It's about Muslims and, and Hindus and Sikhs and Baha'is and, and pagans and, and Wiccans. It's about those people seeking the Lord. That's what all this is about. Um, and so everything about this council is, is helping articulate the mission. Because if the mission of God is to make Jews, it's going to look one way. If the mission of God is for all people to encounter the saving knowledge of Jesus, then it's going to look another way. And we know it's the latter. And so again, as we're looking at this church, how do we rebuild? How do we reshape our mission? God's mission is that all people will seek his face. And that's going to be uncomfortable for us because how do you go to all people? Because some of the all people out there are not people we think should be walking inside the doors of a church. Um, the sixth one that I've got here, the sixth implication of this is ethical. And ethics literally, it means that the moral principles that govern our behavior. This is really about behavior. Um, what's the morality that dictates the way that we live? Um, and I mean, that's in many senses the crux of this council is the ethics. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to not burden you with anything beyond these requirements. Abstain from food sacrifice to idols. Don't eat or drink blood. <laughs> from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. Just four core base principles is all we're going to put on you. 
Um, and, and here's the issue. If you were to start looking at commentaries about this passage, there are like a hundred interpretations as to why this passage is written, why these are the four instructions that were given. Is this like the summary of all that matters from the law that we're supposed to be living up to? Is this some kind of weird cultural thing going on? Um, does this have lasting implication for us today? Are we not supposed to be eating strangled animals? Are we not supposed to be drinking blood? I, I would say sure. Uh, uh, food sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality. This has implications, but here's the deal. This debate is about who is saved and who isn't. They have the conversation. The conclusion is all people are able to be saved. And how does salvation come? You understand and accept that Jesus Christ came for the brokenness of the world, that he, he gave himself as a willing sacrifice to atone for our sin, that our sin cuts us off from God, and that we need Jesus and his sacrifice to cleanse us. That Jesus died that as a vindication for his perfection. He was raised from the dead. He beat sin and death. He's raised to the right hand of the Father. He has poured out his spirit. You believe that basic truth. Jesus came, died for us, uh, was raised to life. You accept that. You have salvation. It's that simple. Now, I don't know where everyone is at in the room. There are many people that grew up around the church that have the intellectual knowledge of that. I know what Christianity is about. I believe Jesus is real. I believe he died. You're not saved unless you're saying with all of your being, I believe that Jesus came and was a sacrifice for me, that my sin separates me from God, and without Christ, I can't live a whole life, and I can't spend eternity with him. That's the truth we believe. If you believe that, the Spirit comes to indwell us. The implication of the Spirit indwelling us is ethical. If the Spirit lives in us, it changes the way that we live. We're filled with a deeper love for God. We're filled with a deeper love for other people. We are filled with a, a, an inner compelling to be part of the mission that God has given us to the world. So you could look at your life and, and ask yourself, do I have a growing love for God? Do I have a growing love for other people? Do I feel compelled to carry out his mission? Because if not, then there are questions about whether you're actually walking with Jesus or not. The implications of life with Jesus is salvation. The implication of life without Jesus is that you're cut off from him for eternity. So salvation is not in question here. But there are some ethical requirements, some behavioral modifications that come as we pursue Jesus. These issues that are raised down here are in part cultural. They're Gentiles. They're around idol worship. They're around sexual immorality. It's a common part of culture. Now you're trying to bring these Gentiles into relationship with these Jews that have lived with severe strictness. So this is not you're saved if you do these things and not if you don't. But if you want to be in relationship with Jewish believers, if you believe that God has a plan for Israel, and now as the church, we are also uh, part of the ministry to reach out to them, then we've got to figure out how to come together. So this really, though it's ethical, is relational. These commands are about how do you honor the Jewish believers that are around about you? So you're one of those people groups that are out there that we as the church say, you're cut off from God's people. You come to faith and you're coming into a group of people that have been walking with Jesus in a stricter form of their faith. There are certain things you're going to have to give up as you walk in the doors 
in order to be able to live in harmony with the people that are inside. But it's not, if you do this thing, you're not saved. If you do this thing, you are saved. It's now that we're in the church, love for God and love for people is primary. And so we give up our freedoms in order to pursue him and in order to love the people around about us. We don't like that in this country, right? There's, there's a guy, um, Dennis Fuqua, so he runs Pastor Prayer Summits for uh, half of the U.S., um, but he's here in Portland. He, well, he lives in Vancouver. But I remember talking to him and interviewing him one day, and he said, you know, in the U.S., our whole history is about signing the Declaration of Independence. It's what marks our country. He's like, the minute you put your faith in Jesus, you have to rip that up and sign a declaration of dependence because your life is now dependent on him and dependent on the church round about you. So he's like, we've got to rip up our declaration of independence spirit and start walking in a declaration of dependence. And what does that mean? It means giving up our freedoms for other people. There are things that we can do. There are things that we can say because I'm a believer, this is true, but we have to limit what we say and limit what we do to love the people around about us, to be able to live in harmony with one another and to be able to honor God. Now I say that there are definitely rights and wrongs. Like this is looking back, these guys are looking back, all they have is the Old Testament. We know as you read other letters like 1 Corinthians, little plug, Jessica Wilkinson is going to be teaching some stuff on 1 Corinthians soon, uh, so watch out for that, it's going to be awesome. But that whole letter is addressing sexual immorality in the church, it's addressing food sacrifice to idols. You go into 1 Timothy, they're told flee from idolatry, flee from these sexual uh, problems, and so these, these teachings get carried out. It's not like these are optional in the church. <laughs> Fleeing idolatry is central as a, as a behavior in our faith. Avoiding sexual immorality is central to the way we live as the people of God. So it's, it's theological, it's ecclesiological, it's scriptural, it's pneumatological, it's missional, it's ethical, it's relational. So like this little council that's so confusing when you read it has so many implications for the future of the church. And this is really the moment in scripture, in Acts, it's the climax moment where the church is formed and the mission of God is now released. This has happened after one missionary journey. The rest of the book of Acts is the rest of the mission going out with freedom because this issue has been clarified. Um, we need to do more in the church where we gather together to clarify how you allow the people out there to participate in the people of God without laying, laying too heavy a burden, but while still requiring to live in harmony with the teaching of Scripture. So there are two, two quick things I want to finish with um, that, that I see in here that are just the things that I chew on um, as I read these kinds of verses. So, so the next one is, is they're teachable. And I, it's a commitment of mine to fight to be teachable and to be in a learning posture. I don't know that we do this very well. So there's a little question here. How teachable are you? You've got these moments in this passage. You know, the apostles and the elders, they met to consider the question. They didn't just go, yeah, that's wrong. Let's just tell you how it's supposed to be. They actually met to discuss it. They were open to exploring that truth. Um, you've got this whole group that are gathered and it says they became silent as they listened to Barnabas and, and Paul. So as Paul and Barnabas are sharing the experience, they're open to receive and they're listening. 
then when they send the message, the people read it and they're glad because of the encouraging message. They're open and responsive to the message that God is bringing. Here's the problem again. We grew up in the church and were raised in a particular way of understanding Scripture. We hear the same truths over and over and over again. And so then when someone says something that goes against what we've been taught, we're just like, no, it's wrong. Like, end of story. There's no, well, let's consider your alternative viewpoint. Let's be silent for a minute and actually listen to what you have to say. Let's talk with some people in our church and kind of evaluate this truth and see if it lines up with Scripture. We're just so quick to shoot it down. What if as a church we took a listening, teachable posture? What if we were quicker to listen to someone's opposing viewpoint? You don't have to agree with it, but to be silent, to hear it, and to be open to God informing your views or your behavior towards others, your compassion, through that listening process. So are you teachable? When someone says something to you that doesn't align with the way you see the world, is your first thought to be silent and to listen? Or is your first reaction to shoot them down and come at them with your viewpoint? No, that's if you're confrontational. I guess if you're on the other side of the, the fence, you just sit there quietly and listen and you don't say anything. You don't admit what you think, that it's different. You don't even enter a dialogue. You just allow them to speak and enable them to hold whatever they want to hold. So are we teachable? Are we willing to enter into that dialogue? Let's as a church be teachable. And there, there, will, there will be times, I don't know what the issues will be. I know as a denomination, um, the Christian Missionary Alliance right now is, is reevaluating theological positions and this two-year process they've been in, like um, the, the, the looking at different issues in our doctrinal statement, doing this very thing. Let's, issues are out there in the world. Let's come together. Let's spend two years reflecting on it, thinking about it, praying over it, searching Scripture, listening to opposing viewpoints, and then let's stand upon truth at the end of it. So this is what our denomination is doing. We're going to have to do this as a church. What have we held historically? Um, as we come out of redevelopment, part of that is going to be having to rewrite our bylaws, re rewrite the, the policies that we walk in. So there's going to be some debate. This is what we did before. What does it look like moving forward? Let's be teachable and open. The other part that I want to say is that this is the verse in here that just, I, I don't know, whenever I come across this verse, it, it just sits with me. There's this little verse in there as they're talking. It says, God who knows the heart. God who knows the heart. I don't know how often you use this as a title for God. Um, when we're doing pre-service prayer and you're looking for an attribute for Father, Son, or Spirit, this is a good one. He's the heart knower. But he said, God who knows the heart poured out his spirit on these people. At the end of the day, we... We do not know the hearts of the people. That was the Spirit coming in with power. <laughs> the breath of God. God knows the heart. So he knows when you're in a confrontation over beliefs. He knows whether your heart is confrontational or whether your heart is teachable and reaching out in love. God knows when you're trying to dictate someone's way of living whether you're doing it with closed-mindedness or whether you're actually trying to lighten their load and welcome them into the fold. God knows your heart. That means he knows all of the evil that's in there. Um, it also means he knows all of the good, all of the honest intent, all of the times that you've been misunderstood, all of the ways that you try and do the things that honor God and just doesn't go the way that you plan. He sees it all. 
Um, <clears throat> been reflecting on part of Psalm 103, and I've, I've shared this with a few different people in conversation, but most people know Psalm 103 because it's got this, this line, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And then my Bible translation says, for he knows what we are made of. Like God knows what you are made of. That means, it goes on to say, he knows we're like dust. So he knows our frailty and our futility and the struggle that we have with putting our faith in him and then living out in the world. He knows the fear of sharing the gospel. He knows the, the fear of rejection. But it also means he knows what you're made of. He knows what you're capable of. He knows what you can achieve. If you go back to Aaron's message last week, like what if we really believed? Rather than going, oh, if I'm going to share the gospel with someone or if I'm going to step out in faith, it's going to go wrong. What if we really believed if I did this? What happens if it goes right? What happens if I step out in faith and this person actually accepts the message? What happens if I step out in faith and I give sacrificially and God actually blesses someone? What if as a church we try this initiative out there in the world and it's actually fruitful? Um, you know, God knows what we're made of. God knows your heart. He knows your capability. He knows your brokenness. And he knows what you're made of. So when it comes to out there in the world, the question is, are we looking at the hearts of people? Are we looking for, for who God is moving in? And are we lightening their load in order to bring them into the saving knowledge of Jesus, allowing Jesus to then do the work to transform them? And are we staying teachable in that process? So this Jerusalem Council, so many implications for us about the posture we should have as we live out our faith in this world. So I'm going to pray. Um, if you're here, I'd like to just close your eyes for a minute if, if you would humor me. Um, because sometimes we, we need that just to focus. But, but I want you to evaluate your life right now. Do you have a growing love for Jesus? Do you find your heart for the people around about you expanding, or are you getting more critical and more bitter? When you hear the message of the gospel and the call to go into the world, do you feel compelled to carry out the mission of God, or do you feel like you're sitting safe and comfortable in your home? Because for some people in the room, if the answers are no, that means you don't actually know Jesus. And so all I want to do is invite you to say, God, you truly are uh, real, that my life is less without you in it that you've created me for intimacy with you. God, that, that Jesus was sent to die for me, not just so that I won't go to hell but go to heaven, but so that I can become your agent in the world carrying out your mission. Um, so if that's you, just say, Jesus, I want you, and I want my life to be shaped by you. Um, for other people in the room, it's about the empowerment of the Spirit. So you're comfortable or fearful or complacent, and you need more of the Spirit at work in you. So for you, your prayer is going to sound something like this, like, God, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for calling me to him. Thank you for saving me. Lord, I'm stuck in a rut, and I need you, Holy Spirit, to fill me with a love for God, to fill me with a love for others, and to send me out into the world to do your work. God, you know my heart. You know what I'm made of. Send me to be your ambassador in the world. 
Um, so God, thank you that you are at work in our church. Thank you that every person is here. No one's here by accident. They're all here because you called them. God, you know them. You know what they're made of, their strength, their brokenness. Would your spirit fall on them? Would you take these people, pour in them a vision for your kingdom? Would you give them an understanding that you have brought them here with a role to play and taking the love of Christ to the world round about? So God, would you stir us up? Would you send us out? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you uh, feel like you're here and, and you were in that first category, I'd love to chat with you and pray for you. So come find me.